Three-Way Moviegasm. Welcome to the podcast. This is Sasha Stone with AwardsDaily.com. I'm here with Ryan Adams, also from Awards Daily, and Craig Kennedy from Living in Cinema. Today on the podcast, we're going to talk about one specific Oscar year, and we're also going to argue about the merits of Please Give. And then the last thing we're talking about is Catfish, which you don't want to miss that discussion. First up, uh, an Oscar year that we think bears a little bit of resemblance to this year. But we're also just going to take an opportunity to 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 look at the year um, that what year was it, Ryan? Do you remember? Nineteen thirty-seven. Is that nineteen thirty-seven? The year that mm-hmm. uh, the life of Emile Zola won Best Picture and Leo McCary won Best Director. And this is kind of riffing off of a discussion this week on the website on Awards Daily about the when Oscar years split between picture and director. And we discovered that it happens more when they had 10 nominees for Best Picture than it happened after that. Um, it I did the percentages on that. I found that it was uh, when there's a year of 10 nominees, uh, the director and Best Picture split like 33% of the time, a, th- um, a third of the time. And uh, other years when there's only five nominees, it only happens like 20% of the time. So it's a mm. significant difference. Interesting. Yeah, it definitely shows that it's easier when there are 10 nominees um, and they're not as united. We had some theories about why there is a Best Director and Best Picture split that came up in discussions, and we can maybe touch on some of those mm-hmm. uh, ideas, some of the reasons. Yeah. Do you want to just start talking about that, or do you want to talk, give a little bit of background about that year, that Life of Emile Zola, that very scintillating Oscar year that no one can forget? <laughs> It's funny though because you know we look. I'm sure that at the time those movies were were considered probably really important. They must have been because the life of Emil Zola was nominated in ten categories and it won like seven or something. I think I, ha- I don't have it right in front of me. And Leo McCary, who won Best Director, had a great reputation that he'd been building for years in Hollywood. He started out in silent films. He um, um, started out with the Hal Roach Studios, you know, the uh, the run one regular comedies, and he was the guy who united Laurel and Hardy. He made them a comedy team. They they didn't even know each other right. before Leo McCary came along. And then he directed the Marx Brothers and Duck Soup. He directed Harold Lloyd, and then he got into sort of his screwball comedy era. Mm-hmm. And um, he by the he he was uh, studios in, liked for him to make the comedies, of course, because they made a lot of money. But he was getting tired of them. And he wanted to do something a little more serious. He had he was a very socially conscious director, and he was really innovative for his time too. He was one of the few directors who used a lot of improv. He would go into uh, filming and start a scene without even having a script, and so that was pretty unusual at the time. Wow! Yeah. And, he had um, the clout to ask to do more important movies, and so Paramount let him do a movie that was sort of a pet project of his that became important to him because his own father had passed away, and he wanted to do a a, a movie about about an older an older couple um, whose grown children are faced with the prospect of having to deal with these with their older parents, whether they. Who are they going to come to live with? The parents have lost their home. It's the Great Depression. And the parents have lost their house, and they're in their 70s. And the kids don't really want them to come live with them, but they're going to have to split them up or send them to 
a retirement home, which at the time they didn't really have those, that kind of thing. So it was a very difficult situation. They just didn't make movies like that back then. Mm. That you, those kind of topics were not not the, the not seen on the screen very often, especially from a director from from a comedy director, right? It just reminds me that the Academy is still they still back then did what they do now, which is that they vote for the movie they like. And they begrudgingly give the director that, quote-unquote, deserves it, the Oscar, when, when it splits like that. My big question for you, Ryan, and I hope you can answer it, is why did they like Life of Emile Zola better than The Awful Truth? Is The Awful Truth the one with Irene Dunn? The Awful Truth is Irene Dunn and Cary Grant. And it's one of those situations where uh, they wanted Cary Grant for the movie, and he was he signed up for it. But then he shows up on the set, and they don't have a script. And he wanted to quit. Cary Grant wanted to quit because he he just didn't work that way. But he he stuck with it and found out that he really was pretty great at improv, and it was one of his better movies. And and he ended up making three or four more movies with Leo McCary after that. But you're right; it's hard to know since we I have seen both those movies, and I will say that the life of Milzola is. Very high class film. I mean, it's it's uh, top notch. But is notch. it is it high class the way how green is, was my valley is is high class? Like as in you respect it, but you're not necessarily uh, wowed by it. But but obviously they they liked it enough to give it ten nominations and then the win. So yeah, it, somehow it this movie, the director was was known at that time for making those prestige biopics. Just the year before, he had made the the story of Louis Pasteur. So he was all into these big um, important historical figures. And Paul Muni was really um, um, one of the top actors of the of the time, and he'd won the won the Best Actor Oscar the year before for mm. Louis Pasteur. And again, he was playing Emile Zola. And so this guy was on a roll. William Dieterle, we don't really he's not a big name right now, and he was only nominated for one Oscar, but he was on a roll. He was at the peak of his career making that type of movie. I would say that he was probably like someone. Maybe close to like the David Lean of his time or something. Mm-hmm. Really, those it was that that sort of epic um, biopic that he was making. I just always will wonder why it is that certain films, most films that win Best Picture, have very little staying power. I mean, people who are you know really into old movies or the Oscars themselves will be able to say, oh, The Life of Emile Zola is, you know, is a great film, it, or How Green Was My Valley, they totally deserve to win, but you simply can't compare them to Citizen Kane, you know, or other films that, that lost. I mean, even The Grapes of Wrath, you know, uh, the year it didn't win, it was another one of the split between picture director years was, <clears throat> excuse mm-hmm. me, Hitchcock's Rebecca won Best Picture. And The Grapes of Wrath won Best Director for John Ford. And John Ford was like Clint Eastwood, you know. He was Mr. Academy. Um, And who's going to argue with Rebecca winning because Hitchcock never really won an Oscar. He won a screenplay Oscar. But for all the great films he he gave us, uh, the only film of his that ever won Best Picture was one of the least deserving. You know, I love Rebecca and everything, but it's not Hitchcock's best. And The Grapes of Wrath was a better movie, so... Um, I'll always be fascinated by this idea that why some films win and why other films go on to have more residence in history, uh, you know, in the few, going forward. I think um, that the um, the Oscars are sort of a snapshot in time, and it's a fairly immediate time after the movie comes out, whereas 
a lot of the really great movies, I think, take time to sink in. Some of them are ahead of their time. Mm. Others are just sort of deep and rich and sort of take multiple viewings to really kind of start to appreciate. And I think it's only looking back at them that we can really appreciate how great they are, whereas an Oscar is more likely to go to the movie everybody's crazy about at that time, which may be a more easily digested movie or it could just be, you know, the flavor of the moment or something like that. Right. That's so true. Do you think that will hold true today? Will we look back 20 years from now at the movies that are winning Best Picture and we'll see that, I mean, this is kind of a rhetorical question because I think, of course, we will say that the movies, a lot of the movies that do win Best Picture are absolutely not going to be considered the best movies of the year. I don't think so, yeah. And I, you know, I'm I'm starting to get an uncomfortable feeling about the year that uh, No Country for Old Men beat There Will Be Blood because... Even though it's my personal preference, um, I look at the year and I look at those movies and I think, you know, There Will Be Blood to me is the movie that's really going to have historical resonance. I, I love No Country for Old Men, as you know, and I wasn't didn't really care for There Will Be Blood. But I just there's a part of me that because I've been doing this so long, I just know that that's the one that's going to have um, all the heat in time. Mm. I think his movie's going to grow, grow in importance, um, the themes it's dealing with. And I think there's a little psychological thing that goes along with, with the idea of a film that won versus one that didn't. Because once they win, they lose a little bit. You know, it's it's like when a person dies and they lose that little tiny bit of, uh, you know, what is it, 21 grams? The 21 grams the of 21, Oscar winning. 21 grams. Like it just dies a little bit and it becomes not as, like for instance, if another movie had beat No Country for Old Men and it was just sitting there, you know, that would become one of those Oscar years like the year Rocky beat network all the president's men it just so happens that the the academy did pick a very worthy winner in no country for old men and it was time for them to recognize the cohen brothers but still there's a part of me that thinks that the paul thomas anderson movie is going to have the deeper resonance i don't know we'll see but that's my prediction i don't really think that the no country for old men or there will be blood that either one of them are that much either one is any more superior than the other i would say they're really very equal and I would let's say looking back on on the years like uh, with uh, Rebecca and uh, The Grapes of Wrath and Citizen Kane, I, I have so much respect for all of those movies. Even though sort of Citizen Kane being one of the greatest movies of all time is going to stand a, on a little bit higher plateau, of course. But I don't, I don't, I certainly don't. I know you don't either. Begrudge Rebecca is, is Best Picture Oscar. Mm-hmm. When I look back at those years, I I look at the. That's why it's great to have the nominees because it really is. You have five, four or five movies that are a handful of those films that that, will, that endure every year. Even yeah. the year that we're talking about with Emil Zola and um, The Awful Truth, that year we also had Lost Horizon and we had A Star is Born, the original A Star is Born mm-hmm. and The Good Earth. I mean, those are fantastic movies. You know, mm-hmm. I, I, I'll admit I hadn't seen The Life of Emil Zola until this week. Um, I just never got around to it, but I knew we'd be talking about it, so I checked it out from the library and was so impressed by it. Hmm. It like um, it, everything about it is just top notch, first class all the way. It's old fashioned, sure, it's old fashioned, and that's and one thing you know, the movies like that sometimes they don't age very well. Right. The Awful Truth that Leo McCary won Best Director for has actually aged much better hmm. because it's a more it's a more modern style of of um, of acting and writing right. than. Well, it's interesting, though. If I mean, let's assume for a minute that the life of Emil Zola was a perfectly reasonable choice for Best Picture. 
if that's the case, then why did they then in a way they snubbed William Dearly and gave it to Leo McCary instead? And it's mm. it's that mm. weird okay. it, it well, just doesn't make know, any sense. I know. I Thanks agree. for the segue though, Craig, because that's part of what uh, Sasha and I had been talking about earlier this week when Sasha posted that about wondering what it was about the awful truth. Why did Leo McCary win Best Director for what's essentially a screwball comedy when the life of Emil Zola is this big, epic, um, prestige picture? And I filled in a little backstory that I happen to know because this year, this year, Criterion released another Leo McCary movie that came out in 1937. That movie, like I said before, is called Make Way for Tomorrow. It's the movie that was his personal project. This movie meant a lot to him. It wasn't a comedy. Paramount let him do it because they felt like they owed it to him because of all the money he had made for them. And it was a very bleak story about this older couple that have lost their home in the Great Depression. Their kids don't know what to do with them. And it's a just a really sad story. Mm-hmm. It's a lot of uh, naturalistic acting. It's almost like a, almost a neorealist type of story. You look at it, and when I first saw it, I thought, oh, my gosh, I can't believe it was made in 1930. It's more like a movie you'd see in the 1950s, the attitudes about class and race and, mm. and and responsibility and social responsibility. And that was another thing, too. In, in 1937, see, the social, social security had only been signed into law two years before. So it was as big a topic in the news at that time as the health care debate is right now. Right. You know, it was a really big deal, the social, social security was was a huge thing and it was on it was very controversial too a lot of people thought it was it was a terrible idea and so this is something that Leo McCary was a personal project for him and when this movie came out they say that critics cried at the end of it and it's, in fact they even said in their reviews that you know that I really can't recommend this movie because it's going to ruin your whole day which My is God. not what you want to have a critic say in the review right especially in the depths of the great depression that's not what people are going to go see. And the movie, in no. fact, it bombed. And Paramount fired Leo McCary because it bombed so badly it lost oh, the money. Oh, God, you're kidding. So is that why it wasn't nominated? Because it bombed? Yeah. It didn't get no, nominated for anything. Wow. But meanwhile, directors who saw it, John Ford, Frank Capra, um, John Renoir, who saw it, just adored it. In fact, Leo McCary got a, a telegram, uh, like a fan letter from George Bernard Shaw, Nobel Prize winning playwright, right? complimenting him on what an amazing movie that Make Way for Tomorrow was. No but it kidding. was it was it failed and it was buried and it wasn't seen it wasn't even on DVD for like 7 decades you couldn't even find this movie. But Criterion has re-released it this year and that's how I happen to know this backstory because um because it, it just came out again and it was on Turner Classic Movies too so I caught it there. But mm-hmm. uh it's an incredibly great movie and so the, the there must have been buzz around town there must have been buzz in Hollywood that this that uh Leo McCary has has surpassed himself this year. And even though his movie bombed, he's made this other movie, The Awful Truth, that's made a lot of money, and it's also very good. So let's honor him for his entire achievement this year. That's what I feel happened. Yeah. I think that's a, a great assessment of, the, of it. So then the Academy would be rectifying an error that the public made, which is very similar to what they did with the Hurt Locker last year. The mm, public didn't go see it. That's a great example, it. yeah. Mm-hmm. And they said, you know what, we thought this was a great movie, and so it doesn't matter that it didn't win or it didn't make enough money, you know. Mm-hmm. 
I will say too that one more thing on this on this subject before we move on. I will say that it has occurred to me no one has brought this up in any of the interviews that I've read or the special features on the DVD. No one brought this up, but I'm also wondering if by giving Leo McCary the the Oscar for the Awful Truth, when he comes back to to the fold and he makes a comedy again, like they want him to do, like the mm-hmm. studios want him to do, if they're not in some way rewarding him for behaving himself, like okay, we let you go crazy and make this really dark, bleak movie that comes from your heart but we really want you to continue to make these comedies yeah. and and we're going to give you the oscar for that and so see see what happens when you're nice how nice we can right. all be when we get along right. you know like that it might have been a little bit of that i'm not sure if there's if the, if the industry thinks with a group think like that so much but it may be the fact that they really wanted him to continue to make the kind of movies that they were familiar with him making right he went on the, the course then to make the Bells of St. Mary and Going My Way with Bing Crosby, which yeah. were the two of the biggest blockbuster movies of, of the year. And th- those both won, mm-hmm. I think, you know, Best Director and Best Picture and Best, you know, a bunch of Oscars, too, those movies. It really sounds like they were they were trying to make up for what, what they consider to have been an injustice. I You know, I, I want to give a shout out to uh, the great book Inside Oscar by Damien Bona and Mason Wiley. And I think after we're finished with this podcast, I'm going to open it up to that chapter and see what I can read about it and see what he's, what they say about that year because they write in detail of every single Oscar year. Ryan, do you have that book? I don't have that book. I, I need that to get for it. You. Yeah. yeah, I know you've talked about it a lot. I know that you're that you're uh, you think a lot of Damien Bonas, so I will check that out. Yeah. Do we want to say before we leave um, 1937? that it might have some relevance to this year, too. And the fact that, that there's a difference sometimes between the big prestige movie that is really popular among Academy members across a broad spectrum and with audiences as a crowd pleaser, and then sometimes the movie that wins Best Director is the more personal um, artistic uh, expression. Mm-hmm. And that could happen this year, right? We've already talked about the fact that this year, this could be this is a prime situation for a director picture split this year. Right. It's very possible. Um, if people are to be believed in their idea that the social network can't win because it's not warm and fuzzy enough, mm-hmm. and they think that's the reason the King's speech will win. I mean, if, if they're at all put off by these, you know, by Mark Zuckerberg and, you know, uh, the whole idea of, of little brat millionaires um, being sort of dissected on film, which... My opinion of that is that they'll love it because they ha- they hold the same disdain for Zuckerberg that Aaron Sorkin uh, has, even though he says he doesn't. It's it's clear that he has disdain for you know a lot of the kind of technological advancements that have um, altered our ways of communicating. But um, if if that's the theory, then yeah, it the, it will split. You know, and we're thinking that the best picture then could go to something like the King's Speech, right? Which would which would be a lot similar to the life of Emil Zola because it's a big, lavish biopic uh, based on a true story. Well, put it this way: we saw how well Harvey Weinstein did last year with Inglorious Bastards, which, by all rights, shouldn't have even been in the Oscar race, and it was, and it did really well, and it was a major player. So I, I shudder to think what he's going to do with um, with this one. Well, um, and people are really loving the movie too. I mean, everyone who's seen it really, really respe- has a lot of respect for it. Um, yeah, but loving it is one thing, but what Harvey Weinstein's going to do with it is a whole different thing. I mean, he he's the best 
I still think he's the best, even though he hasn't had a winner in a while. I still think he can do it. He knows the Academy better than any other producer, and he knows exactly how to play to them, um, except for that poster. I don't know whose decision right. that was. I don't know what happened there. I, I really could. I didn't. I wasn't really too fond of the poster, but I was shocked at the at the negative response that came from people once the once the word got out that it was a little bit cheesy that everyone piled on. Yeah. And I didn't even really think it was that bad. I thought it was fine. But I mean, um, I'm glad that you found another one, though. And I hope that they redo it. And I hope that they hope that that's not, not the last attempt they make at a poster. Well, I understand what they were trying to do with it. They were de- By the way, we're talking about the poster for the King's Speech. And you can see that on awardsdaily.com if you don't already follow the site, which by some miracle, you might actually be listening to this podcast and you don't follow either of our <laughs> websites. So if that's the case... Once again, Sasha Stone, Ryan Adams from Awards Daily, Craig Kennedy from livinginsinema.com. Um, okay, so move, are we are we done with this topic and we're going to move on to the next thing or should we keep- uh, One more thing. Uh, I will say that if the King uh, – one reason that uh, – even an, another further reason for director picture split this year, if the King's Speech does go all the way to Best Picture, it's directed by Tom Hooper, Right. Mm-hmm. He was never who we. All we know about him is that he directed uh, John Adams for HBO. Right. right. I really can't see in any conceivable way that he can win Best Director. When does that ever happen? Never. That a director from out of nowhere wins Best Director. Well, they can if it's Sam Mendes and he's coming out of theater and he's British and he's mm-hmm. already got a lot true. of. True. That's um, true. That's but, that's one exception. You're except right. for the fact that that move. Well, I guess the best. The only example you can really come up with are, are when they had split years, like with Chariots of Fire when it won Best Picture and didn't win Director. So you're exactly right, I think, when you say that it, usually it's the star director who wins. Mm-hmm. Um, and that would be perhaps like Ang Lee with Brokeback Mountain when Crash won Best Picture. So I could see them going, okay, we're going to give David Fincher his overdue Oscar, but we're not going to give Social Network Best Picture, you know? It's possible. Let's not count out uh, Christopher Nolan, too, for Best Director. Well, am I am I crazy to think that actually Darren Aronofsky has a better shot than either Fincher or Norlin? <laughs> no, yeah. you're not crazy. <laughs> but I mean, we're just we're saying we're proving the point that there are some really star directors this year, right? And I was just I was just thinking we, we were we were locked in on Fincher, and I was thinking, wait a minute, there's that little Black Swan picture coming up, which I, I am kind of I locked in. on a, I'm just I'm kind of locked in on, on him personally, but I right. I do have in my mind that there are, are a lot of other strong contenders. I think in my head it's a little bit sexier of a choice because I haven't seen it yet. It's still technically an unknown, whereas I've seen mm-hmm. Social Network and, and it, it kind of de-romanticizes it a little bit, so yeah. it's easier to sort of... It's totally understandable that it would seem like the better. I think that what Aronofsky has maybe more than anybody else is he has a chance to be that fifth surprise director nominee for Best Director. So, you know, everybody's kind of predicting the five. And I think a few people are starting to put in Aronofsky as being the one visionary of the year. You know, the one celebrated visionary. It's really pretty shocking that he didn't get nominated for The Wrestler. But we have to see Black Swan and decide for ourselves if we think it's really worth it. I mean, if... Yeah, we'll know in a week whether it's... Well, I just have the sense that it's... That, that, it, that it might not be the Academy's cup of tea for best picture, but that it could be exactly one of those kind of pictures that they, they kind of admire and they kind of think, okay, we get it. We just weren't totally into it, but we appreciate it. So we're going to give them best director and we're going to give... King's Speech or something else, Best Picture. Do you know, do you know what I mean? Yeah. 
They do. Absolutely. It's got the kind of flair that they look for in a best director. Um, yeah. The, you know, where, you did, where a director just absolutely just goes wild with uh, stylistic flourishes. And, and in I, a way, think... the social network is not one of David Fincher's most spectacular directorial efforts. Yeah. The, the only scene that really shouted Fincher to me was the regatta scene. Um, the rest That's of it. Right. I don't mean, I mean, more, I mean but the rest it of it was a... more of a Sorkin movie to me. I just mm. want to clarify. I, it was a it was a fantastically directed movie, but it just wasn't right. flashy. Is what I mean. Right, and and Fincher, with notwithstanding Benjamin Button, doesn't have the greatest track record with with the Academy. I mean, a lot of the Fincher fans assumed that Zodiac was going to be his big Oscar shot, and it bit the big one basically. And I I just wonder. Yeah, but they. I, you know what? Um, I knew Zodiac wasn't going to get nominated. Absolutely. Fincher is like Scorsese. He needs a good screenwriter. Um, and the same way that Scorsese was acknowledged for Depart- The Departed, um, I can see how uh, David Fincher would be acknowledged for... You know, generally speaking, directors don't win for their best work. Right. They really don't. They win for directing a movie that a lot of people liked. And if you're going to make a movie that is the best film of your career, there's a pretty good chance that most people aren't going to be able to agree that it's a great film. It'll be like the critics, a few discerning members of the public, but it's not going to be everybody. Because to appeal to everybody, you have to dumb it down. And so, but somewhere in there is a happy balance between dumbing it down, making good entertainment, and winning Oscars. You know, to me, it's like, it's not the best, but it's the best of what appeals to the most amount of people. That's how you figure it out. It's the one that you can sit everybody in your family down in front of, your kid, your grandma, your mom, your gardener, your cook, your maid, um, anybody. And they will watch it and they'll respond to it. They might not love it, but they'll at least understand it and get it. You can't put a movie in front of them that they're not going to get and expect it's going to win an Oscar. That's that's my worry with Black Swan. It's my worry with Inception. It's my worry uh, not with The Social Network, not with The King's Speech. Those are two movies, I think, that do appeal to general audiences. So Another thing about... about the can I say one I thing should... first? I'm yeah. sorry. I don't mean to jump on you, but I, I had another thought, and this perfectly ties into it. Um, what you just said relates about... A director not ever winning for his best, not ever winning the best picture Oscar for his literal best film. Yeah. That to me ties back to what you said about um, No Country for Old Men. I would argue, I mean, you, you can split hairs, but I think most people would agree that that is at least in their top three best right. films. And that to me is one of the reasons why I don't think it will ever, outside of a little bit of backlash, I don't think it will ever be considered a bad choice as good as there will be blood was that was a a really strange um collision of directors who were due who had done among their best work ever that had pretty much steamrolled the critics did okay at the box office it didn't do great but it did well enough and it's a movie that everybody was talking about and in a way still is so Mm. even though I, i i agree with your theory but that 
sort of um, that might be an exception. That's what you're saying, and I think so too. Look, uh, even now, I would say that No Country for Old Men, in my mind, is still growing in stature. It's a movie that I could, I could, I could take off the shelf right now and watch again at any time. Oh yeah, I could and absolutely. I'm, I'm, I'm I not mean, tired of it at all. Whereas some best pictures, no need to, no need to mention any names, but recent years, I, I don't have any need to revisit them right now. And probably won't for a long time. Right. But uh, yeah, and I should, you know, you bring up a good point, Craig, because I I really shouldn't have said such a an absolute statement because you're right. I can I can find um, American Beauty might be Sam Mendes best film, and uh, The Hurt Locker is certainly Catherine Bigelow's best, and Schindler's List is Steven Spielberg's best. So um, I guess I think one. One way that you're correct, though, and one one thing that we see, I think, when we look at best directors, and we and sometimes we see that they're remembered later after their careers peak, is because I think when a when a director is at the peak of his career, the movies he's directing or her career, they're ahead of their time, don't you think? The directors who are at the peak of their powers are directing movies that are ten or fifteen years ahead of their time, so they're inherently not going to be understood when the, the year they come out. They're not appreciated until later. And then people look back and say, Wow, that was really in- incredible. And you wait for that director then to return to form. You wait for the director like Scorsese to return to the gangster mode or whatever. You know, to, to go back to the kind of movies that you that that you forgot to reward him for when he was doing that at his best. Right. Maybe. Really yeah, it seemed say. it seemed like the Academy wanted to give Scorsese an Oscar for a really long time after they kept nominating after, it. after he didn't yeah. get it, but it just seemed like after Goodfellas there wasn't the movie that he kept not making the movie that they really wanted to award him for, yeah. and then finally The Departed came along, which as much as I liked it, I don't think it's anywhere near his best film, but it was good enough to finally say, okay, it's good enough. We're going to finally give Scorsese his Oscar. Right. But it was the best film that year, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. I mean, with well, the possible exception of Letters from Iwo Jima. But it was um, it was a really, really entertaining movie. And that's the thing to me about The Social Network. It's got that same kind of crackling good entertainment value that The Departed had. It's unlike any other film this year because Aaron Sorkin wrote the screenplay and his writing stands out. I know people think I'm crazy, but they always think I'm crazy every year when I go over the moon <laughs> for a film. But I'm telling you, I have a, a sixth sense for that kind of thing, for what it is that has that combination of... Great- the zeitgeist kind the fa- factor, yeah. right? The zeitgeist factor. The zeitgeist, but also that thing that makes you want to watch it and that I know my mom would love it. You know, um, I know a 70-year-old woman who said she loved it. I mean, it's just... I'm probably going to see it again this weekend. I thought that the uh, that 127 hours might might come to my town this weekend, but it's not going to make it. And so I'm going to be... I'm disappointed. So I'm going to see the next best thing. I'm going to go back and see The Social Network again for the third time. Wow. I'd like to see it again, too. Okay. So now we're going to talk about a movie that, for once, we kind of disagree on. Um it's uh, Please Give, which just recently came out on DVD. It's directed by Nicole Holofcener. Is that Am I pronouncing mm-hmm. her name correctly? I think so. It's weird. When you write all the time, I pronounce names in my head, but I never really worry about how to say them out loud. Then all of a sudden, I'm finding myself here, catching myself, hoping that I'm not mispronouncing people's names. Right. So apologies in advance if I steamroll your name. Um, anyway, uh, Catherine Keener and Oliver Platt play um, a material, a materially overprivileged but spiritually malnourished Manhattan couple. They um, basically exist to buy 
antique furniture from clueless grieving loved ones of people who recently died and they resell it on 10th Avenue um, at enough of a markup so that they can afford an apartment in Greenwich Village. Mm. But of course, their swell apartment isn't enough to keep them happy. So they buy the apartment of the cranky 91-year-old next door to them with plans for knocking out walls and expanding the minute that the old lady kicks the bucket. Um, Rebecca Hall plays the um, old lady's mousy granddaughter, um, and she rightly looks at at Keener and Platt as the pair of vultures that they are. Um, The problem that I have with the movie, partly, is that they're made out to be vultures with consciences. Mm -hmm. Um, Catherine Keener uh, sort of fills this unarticulated void in her life by giving homeless people money as though that actually changes anything. And Oliver Platt spends his time uh, banging Rebecca Hall's superficial bitchy sister, <laughs> played by Amanda Peet, who's kind of a, a bitter shrew in the making. Um, oddly, uh, she's the least likable character in the movie, but she's the most honest about who she is, and therefore the most, um, the one that I was drawn to the most, um, and the one that almost sort of rescued the movie for me. Um, and I should say that Amanda Peet. I'm sorry. You, you mean Amanda Peet? The who did I say? Oh, I don't know. I think you did. No, I, said, I want to I clarify. I think you did say Amanda yes, Peet, but I, I dozed off. Yeah, Amanda Peet as the bitchy sister who okay. is is horrible and evil, but she's sort of admirable because she acknowledges that she's horrible and evil, whereas all the other people pretend like they're not. And um, I should say that it's that it's funny. And it's really well acted. In fact, the ensemble got a Gotham nomination. And I, I don't argue with that at all. Um, what bothers me is is what the movie seems to be standing for. I mean, it it presents you with these horrible people. And without saying how it ends, they kind of end up getting exactly everything that they want. And they continue being horrible. And you have the feeling, and, and I'm never sure where Hall of Cener stands on them. Is she expecting us to mock them, or are we supposed to laugh at them, or are we supposed to feel sorry for them? And I, I really left feeling like she expected us to feel sorry for them, and I found them um, unbearable and just couldn't bring myself to doing it. Hmm, God, that's interesting. Um, I think that what was going on there with her was that she has changed um, her own lifestyle so much that she feels like she can't write about um being you know poor and you know living in a tiny apartment and you know all these indie movies they're always about poor people you know Mm -hmm. and it's one of the things i liked about it was that it it takes you into a world that she knows really well now and that it isn't phony because that's the world she's living in and she she kind of touched a little bit on this with her other film um friends with money Mm-hmm. Jennifer Aniston, which I loved because to me as a person who has no money often hanging around with people who have a lot of money, it really hit home. And I thought that it was so funny that that's really when I became a fan of, of Nicole Hall of Sinair's work was that because I, I thought I walked, went in expecting it to be a really shitty movie and it wasn't. It was so funny and so true, even though it has kind of a cop out ending that that one does. Um, I agree with you that I didn't really like them that much and I didn't feel sorry for them. Um, I was annoyed with both of them, especially Oliver Platt. But the one thing I liked about it was the continuing thread of please give, meaning give to the people you love who are with you. And even if they're mean old grandmas, even if they're um, 
husbands that you don't love anymore or, um, you know, sisters that you can't really stand. I mean, or a daughter that you feel is too overprivileged to, to afford a pair of jeans. I mean, to me, the movie was less about wanting to give um, to charities and more about the idea of you should, you should really be more giving with the people you love. And I think that worked in that level. What I, I buy that, but what threw me is, is was the whole $200 pair of jeans subplot and the way that it was resolved. Basically the girl gets the pair of jeans in the end and they all live happily ever after. Mm-hmm. That just rang so horribly to me. It's like, you like to, I, I wanted this girl to be the one who realizes that they're all a bunch of shallow assholes and pulls herself out of that. But it's just reinforced in the end. And that's what really threw me off. Right. They made too much yeah. of that. I mean, I agree. I think they made way too much of the Jean's subplot. Um, but it didn't bother me so much. I thought the daughter, the daughter was one of the most sympathetic characters in the movie. I found a lot of the characters sympathetic. Um, I know, Greg, when you were describing it, you did a great job making it sound as horrible as, as you possibly could. But even if I had not seen the movie, based on your on your uh, description, I would say, man, that sounds great. I can't wait to see that. Here's the thing. <laughs> I love movies I, I, like that. I love movies like that. And I love people that have all kinds of – that they're just really fucked up, you know? I mean, I have to say maybe it's because my own social circle is so – messed up but i wouldn't mind hanging out with those people I, they would be friends of mine i would i would be friends with these people i don't i don't mind movies where i don't like any of the characters in them but i tend to like to either see those characters punished severely or <laughs> to at least be enlightened to the fact that that they're terrible right. or they to at least dumb. feel they like enlightened the, a little bit I, uh, I they were but then they just they they slouched off at the end and even even the Rebecca Hall character, who I liked and who sort of resisted the, this shallowness, there's that whole running joke about going upstate to see the leaves change colors. Mm-hmm. And she was against it because she realized it's a pretty shallow thing to do. But even she capitulated to that in the, in the very end. And it just kind of Really? This... Do you think that's a shallow thing to do, to go see the beauty of nature? I didn't feel that was shallow at all. I felt like uh-huh. that was probably... A little bit. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't, get, I didn't think bit. it that way, and I also didn't feel like that I was that I was meant to feel sorry for anybody at the end. I felt like that they they all had their just punishments. They're not they're not they're not happy at the end of that movie. I didn't think that just because the daughter got a pair of jeans that that's going to make her happy or happily ever after. I felt like that they're they're messed up at the beginning and they're messed up at the end, and that's why I like the movie in a way because it's that's the way real life is. People don't really get these big enlightenment moments. All the time. Well, and it's interesting if you if you have kids because you know you come up against this kind of thing all the time. Do you not buy them the jeans because two hundred dollars is just simply too much money to pay for jeans? I think so. As a mom, I would never buy my daughter a pair of two hundred dollar jeans. It's just right. not going to happen, no matter how. Although I've bought her American Girl dolls, and those cost almost a hundred dollars. So you know, and I don't think her getting an American Girl doll made her happier. It just made her fit in with her friends. Who were mm-hmm. a lot more wealthy than we were, um, but I think she did that, look great in those jeans. Though you have to admit, the other jeans they had the her jeans. try on, she looked horrible in all the other jeans they had her wear. I can understand why she couldn't set. She that couldn't was be the thing is, with any, you know, with, you gotta, you gotta. If you find a good pair of jeans, man. <laughs> Yeah, and you know, at the same, it's, her, it's not as if her parents couldn't afford that either. They, her, like, as she pointed out, her mother's handing out twenty bucks on the street to homeless people 
right and left. Why can't she give her daughter twenty a two hundred dollar pair of jeans? Well, the problem Parents was she, really she well. never. They, they they can afford to buy anything that they want, really. Yeah, but the mo- the mother character this this is a weakness in the film is that she didn't teach her daughter a lesson really with that. She was teaching her to feel guilty about having money because she was saying you have money, you shouldn't spend it, you should give it to poor people. But that's not the lesson to teach her. The lesson to teach her is don't waste your money this way. You know, even mm-hmm. if you have money, don't waste it on something that um, that you can get somewhere cheaper. But on the other hand, Ryan, you're right. If you find a great pair of jeans that fits you like that and you're a teenager, right. mm-hmm. I mean, you know, a, a woman, a grown woman who made her own money would do it. I mean, what I might have done is I might have had her work for it and earn the money herself and then buy it. Mm-hmm. And then that would give it a little bit more meaning for her, you know, where she would she would have maybe she had two hundred dollars and she said, you know what, I don't want to put all my money down on a pair of jeans. I want to use it for something else. You know, that's maybe a better lesson. I but, should say that I didn't dislike the, the the daughter character at all. I actually really really liked that character, and I actually don't blame her for being superficial because she is a teenager. But what irked me was Keener's total capitulation to her daughter's shallowness and simply because she 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 felt bad and wanted her daughter to like her. I mean, I understand that. That's a, an incredibly human reaction, but it was just, it, it piled annoying on top of and annoying. I, as far as that hard, I think it's being hard on the daughter to say that she's shallow for wanting this pair of jeans because it's a natural thing. Like we said, you know, that, that for her she, age, I think it is, but mm-hmm. as a, as a human, as a, as an adult who, well, looks looks for more in life than a pair of jeans that fits. It seems, that's like I said, I'm not, I'm not being critical of the character, the right, character acting of her age and the way she was raised. But it was time in that relationship for the Keener character to put her foot down and teach her daughter something about you know the real things that are important in life. And she totally bailed on it. Yeah. It's not the daughter's fault. It's completely the mother's fault. And it's what soured me on the movie. Right. Well, I mean, if it sours you on the movie, then it, that's just... Yeah, um, that's true. And they, they did make a big point of the genes, and so they wanted it to mean something. But it just didn't mean that much to me because I, in the whole overall scheme of the movie, I thought I couldn't believe they kept going back to it so much. And so it really didn't mean that much to me, and so I didn't I didn't worry about it not being the lesson that, I, that needed to be taught. I figured there's, there's going to be other lessons after the movie ends that I don't get to see. But I that just was felt just like something. they were making a point that this girl was, this woman, Catherine Keener, was not giving to her immediate family. She mm. was so giving to everybody else, but she wasn't giving her husband any affection, and she wasn't really paying attention to what her daughter needed and wanted. Now, maybe it's a writer's mistake to manifest that, um, need for whatever her mom isn't giving her in a pair of jeans. You know, that automatically makes it kind of superficial. And, you know, at the end when she gets them and she's happy, you're sort of like thinking, wow, those jeans look great on her, good for her. But you're also thinking like what Craig is saying, well, they're they're just giving in to their rich pe- person impulses to, to, buy th- to buy your way out of your unhappiness. This all felt so real to me. It just felt so real that, that that's, that's the kind of thing that – those are the kind of lessons – whether it's a flawed lesson or not, that's the kind of thing that really happens in families. And it really did bring everybody together. So what, you know, fine. I think that's great. And I, and I, I found that a lot of the characters really um, lovable. I mean, especially the old lady, of course, you know, she's just adorable. And the, and Rebecca Hall is the daughter. She's, trouble but i wouldn't say that and she's she's uh, shy and, and timid but i wouldn't say she's mousy i think that's pretty harsh greg mm. i i didn't mean that as a as a uh 
a criticism of her. That's oh, one of the characters that I liked. Okay. I think I think it describes her perfectly. She's she's mm-hmm. kind of antisocial. She doesn't do herself up to look nice. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I, when I say mousy, I don't necessarily mean it bad, but I think it's descriptive of the way she was. Yeah, she was definitely my favorite character, Rebecca Hall. Um, and I kind of wished that the whole movie was about her and her sister, the two of them, because to me that was the more interesting story. I didn't really, like Craig, I wasn't all that involved with the Catherine Keener storyline. They mm-hmm. Not only were they annoying, but he, I didn't really like the husband that much. And they're just, their story wasn't that dramatic, as dramatic as the two sisters with the grandma. Now that was something right there that, I mean, I think that could have been explored a little bit more, like why the sister is the way she is and mm-hmm. um, what happened to their mother. And they were just more interesting, more compelling characters. It probably would have been a better movie I, now that you mention it like that, but, but I, I, did, I had no problem with it. I enjoyed it thoroughly all the way through and uh, I probably fall somewhere in between uh, where you and Craig stand on it. Mm. I think it's fair to say that um, most people had your guys' response to the movie. Most people really liked it. Um, not a lot of people saw it, and I would recommend that a lot of people should, even though I personally found it repellent because <laughs> uh, the general reaction to it, it was very positive. And I'm even even as the movie ended, I was a little bit on the fence. I was like, I was repulsed by it, but I was also thinking, well, did I just misunderstand it? Do I need to see it again? Is there something that I missed? Am I just getting hung up on one small stupid thing? I haven't revisited it yet, but I plan on sticking it in my my Netflix queue and and giving it another shot because there was a lot to like about it. As I said before, there was a lot of humor. The performances were all terrific. Um, It just... The ending just left a real sour taste in my mouth. It was, it yeah, was, I mean, well, she's got to understand. She's got to evolve as an artist because, yes, it's interesting that she's writing about this set of people like Woody Allen does. But her, she's got to realize that the majority of her audience aren't going to be people like that. And, you know, if, if they are like that, they're not necessarily going to want to go to watch a movie and navel gaze at their own lives. Right. I think it might be better for her if she stops writing about her own personal stories and, and tries to you know, broaden it to um, the rest of the human race. I mean, especially now when everybody's, you know, struggling financially, liberal, upper middle class liberal guilt isn't the most compelling thing, you know. It's it's disgusting is what it is. <laughs> I, I don't mind horrible characters in movies, especially if they they own their horribleness, but when they feel sorry for themselves for being horrible, then I, I start to, to push back. And that's sort of what happened to me in this movie. I guess I just I just know people like that though, and so I, I find I found it really real. I found it really true true to life, and so that I didn't bother me because I know that there's that 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 those people exist, and so why shouldn't they have a movie made about themselves? Yeah, well, I'm just thinking that Nicole Holofcener can start branching out a little bit more, and I hope she does. She's incredibly talented. I've just liked the movies that she's writing from the perspective of of the have-nots more than I've liked this one, where she was assuming the position of the haves more. Which you explained at the beginning why that was, and I didn't really know that backstory, so that's interesting. But it just—I uh, never found a way into it for myself. Hmm. Okay, so I think we did. Please give. We've disagreed on one movie now. That's a count of one. There's going to be <laughs> another one coming up now, right? Yeah, and now unfortunately we're going to delve into Catfish, the movie that I seem to hate while everybody else seems to really love, and. We're doing it at the end of the podcast because we don't want to spoil it for anyone who hasn't seen it. And the whole movie is basically one big long spoiler. 
So it's if you don't if you don't if you plan on seeing the movie and you don't want to hear what we have to say, then definitely you can stop the podcast now and thanks for listening. If you're interested in hearing um, us yarn on and on about catfish, then please stay tuned. So Nev Shulman is this artist um, working in New York, and uh, he's a photographer. And one day he receives um, a letter from a little girl, uh, this 12-year-old who lives in Michigan, asking him if he can paint, uh, if she can paint one of his photographs. And he agrees. And a little while later, she sends him a copy of the painting, and it's really good. And he's really intrigued by this um, this girl. So he, I can't remember if he strikes up a conversation with her online or if it's on the phone or what. But that that's sort of his entry into this this family who lives in Michigan. He ends up talking to the mother, um, this woman named Angela, and he also ends up talking to um, the little girl's older sister named Megan. Um, and he finally sees pictures of her on Facebook, and they start kind of springboard into a romantic relationship. Um, but all along the way, and this will seem incredibly familiar to anyone who has ever been involved with anybody online, there's all these little warning signs that maybe not everything about Megan is, is quite as it seems to be. Um, but he's pretty much, um, he just kind of overlooks it. But they decide to uh, show up at, at this family's house uh, uh, one day with cameras rolling and unannounced and to finally try and get to the bottom of, of what it's all about. And that's where the movie becomes controversial. Mm-hmm. Okay. I will say that even though uh, Sasha, you've already said that the, the part about uh, him seeming to be uh, involved in a, in a in online relationship with this little girl, I didn't feel that so strongly at first. I, I, I did feel that all of the initiation of the communication and all of the pursuit came from the girl's family, came from Angela, came from Megan, came from Abby. All of the initiation of the conversation, all of the pursuit, and really, they wouldn't leave him alone. I, I didn't well, feel like that he was initiating. Really. No, he was really that. nice to that little girl. And if, yeah. you know, anybody who's a mom of a 12-year-old, if that... Okay, so we know now that it was Angela doing it. So we can't... We could never lay the blame on the mom. We can't say, what kind of mom would ever let... Because it wasn't a kid. It was a, It was her living through her daughter. And the sick and twisted thing about it is that she lived through both her daughters, unfortunately. Her daughter, Megan, actually exists but doesn't speak to her anymore and lives in another part of the country. And her other her little daughter that does live with her, God knows how she's going to survive all this, um, was being played by Angela, who contacted Nev and wanted to sell him or wanted, you know, him to be engaging with her. I don't think that Angela fell in love with him until later. Once right. she realized how cute he was and his, his life in New York, I think at first she was really trying to get herself famous as a child artist, which was crazy in and of itself. Mm-hmm. But that's what she had said that she had her own paintings and people were really cruel to her online. Um, and so she figured if she could just mask it in the body of a child that people would think she was a genius and she would sell her paintings. And so that's why she saw his photograph, she painted it, and she sent it to him as this young girl, maybe thinking she could get that picture in a newspaper or something to get fame. But so she meets, she falls in love with Neve, Nev, whatever, and then she has to create Megan in order to woo him and seduce him and live out that fantasy. So, however, there's no excuse for any thinking person, in my opinion, 
to go down a road online with a 12-year-old girl. Full stop. I mean, I'm not even saying he's being a pervert. I'm just saying there's something weird there. You know, been online since 1994. I know how people are. I know a lot of guys. Most of my friends are guys. Um, nobody is going to take the communicate, no matter how flattering the painting is, no matter how nice the girl is, and have a kind of relationship with her where he felt so close to her that he got to know her whole family. Mm-hmm. Sorry, but that's just right off the bat. I'm thinking, okay, so something is not only up with Angela, something is up with Nev. He's, he's a very strange person to, to get involved in this. And that's one of my main problems with the film is that they don't ever stop and look at themselves. And that's really what's needed here to make a balanced documentary because they are part of the subject of the documentary. It's not just her. Mm-hmm. If they were documentarians um, filming this and it wasn't them filming it as it happened, they would have turned the camera on the same way that Werner Herzog kind of turns the camera on Timothy Treadwell. Um, and then finally turns the camera back on us for watching and being interested in the story. I needed for the filmmakers to confront Nev and how weird he is. I mean, that's just the bottom line. And they never do that. They put it all on her. Well, I'll say that whenever we disagree about this movie, and we're going to, obviously, I'm not, I'm not trying in any way to convince you to change your mind about it because I know that's, that's, that's fruitless pursuit. I won't be able to. And, and I'm not, it's, it's not important to me either, but I don't feel the same way about, about his relationship at the beginning because I felt like that Angela, the mother, inserted herself into the, the situation very early on. I mean, within it seemed to me within a matter of days because she needed to do that for herself because it wasn't going to get her where she wanted to be remaining to uh, behind the facade of her daughter. She needed to present herself as as an adult in order to have a relationship with Neve. And, and I thought that she inserted herself into the situation so soon and actually sent a, a um, painting of herself that made herself look really beautiful. I always felt that Abby was the least important person in the whole uh, in the whole family to him. That he was nice to her as just a really nice guy, but no that way. Was, she that she offered end, him that up. He, that he would she, continue to be and, nice. To, sorry, go ahead. I, I felt that he continued to be nice to her just to stay on the good side of of Megan and 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 the mother. No, because when he came, when they all came out there, much ado mm-hmm. was made about his relationship with her. They went took her to the beach. You know, here she is. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, Angela kept serving up her poor daughter on a plate to this person who had no idea who, you know, that little I kind Abby of saw that as an excuse. I thought that was that was going to be sort of their excuse. Like, yeah, but it shows to... you how intense their relationship must have been if she's, mm-hmm. you know, making her parade around. Oh, don't you want to see the girl you're so close with online? I'm not saying that he's all big pervert or anything. I'm just saying yeah. that to me that's a red flag of a weird person that would do that. I mean, neither of you guys would ever do that in a million yeah. years. And obviously the brothers knew something was up because they started filming it. A couple of things. Let me jump in here. They started filming it because, uh, according to this, is their story that that's what those the, the, that one of the filmmakers is Nev's brother. Um, yeah. I can't remember his name. Um, it's but like that's Ariel, what they've done their whole their whole yeah Ariel and Nev. Um, that's what they've done their whole lives. They've they've filmed themselves. That's what they do. And actually, the beginning of the story is fuzzy. Um, we don't exactly know all of the details because they weren't filming everything until. They didn't really start focusing on it until it became a thing between Nev and Megan. Then they really realized that there was something here, so that's when they really started focusing on it. 
I, the impression I was left with was that that Nev didn't really communicate directly with Abby very much, if at all. It was all with Angela, the mother, and the mother pretending to be Megan. Uh, Abby was used as the as the launching point um, on Angela's part, but I, I didn't get the sense that any of Nev's interest ever was focused on Abby at all. That's well, how I feel. When I was but, watching the movie, there were in the beginning there. You watch it again if you want, but there's a lot of scenes that show him communicating with her on Facebook. Mm-hmm. With it Abby? starts with yeah, with Abby talking back and forth with her. You know, finding oh, I remember out about that. her she day. Says, um, all the stuff um, in the beginning is my all turtle about died Abby. or something like that. He said, "I didn't even know she had a turtle." So she's telling him stories, and he's he's they're they're having conversations about before the mother is involved. I, you're right about that. It but seemed I didn't like think he was humoring her to me more than I, anything. I, I, Still, thought so I thought he was just being very. I thought he was being a nice guy because he thought that. She doesn't want to shoot her down. You know? I know everybody paints him as a nice guy, but you know there's a moment in the movie where he proves himself. He reveals himself as not such a nice guy, and you know that's why the moment that he does reveal himself, I'm not saying he's a jerk, but he he's not like super nice like everybody thinks, or he wouldn't have like giggled through his intimate chat conversations with Megan under the covers in such a silly way, and he wouldn't have acted so glib when he found out that the relationship was false. But the part, in my opinion, that he reveals himself to be uh, a not-so-nice person is when um, Henry says that he doesn't want to expose them because he sees them as a really sad family, which is exactly how I saw them and how a lot of people saw them as a family that doesn't need to be the subject of a documentary like this. It's too sad. It's too horrible. Why would you do that? For what benefit other than fame for them? Um, so when he says, Nev, at that moment, he says, no, I'm going to make her face her lies or whatever. To me, that says, you know, dumb young guy, doesn't get the big picture, has no idea that the suffering that this woman's going through or anybody in that family because he's too young to understand. I know I keep getting back to the too young thing, but that's all right. I really mean it, you know, that, that he was irresponsible at the wheel of this project and he wasn't thinking it through, um, Okay, so, well, you know that, that's that's a, I, I certainly absolutely see what you how you feel about that, but I think that's one of the interesting things about a documentary like this is that since it's not scripted and it's not acted, there the characters are not contrived by a writer, and so the writer is not directing you to think that there's a there's a there's a villain or that there's even any underlying motive that an actor is trying to to disguise in in, in his acting, and so we we interpret um, what's going on in, on some, in someone's face or in their reactions so differently. When, when he was lashing out at her saying he wanted to teach her a lesson, what I got from that, I felt that he had really been hurt. I felt like mm-hmm. he was in love with Megan. And he, when he found out that he had been led on and he had been misled and betrayed, that he wanted to make her pay for that. And I well, think then, that's a, a right, bit of a natural reaction. When he found that was, out that was, it was his fake. first instinct. It no. might not have been the best instinct, but it was a right. perfectly he was human g- and understandable one. And one that I think he ultimately regretted a little bit. I think once he really got to the bottom of who this family was, I think he I think he regretted his anger a little bit. Mm-hmm. Well, to me, his anger and his hurt was all exaggerated because it did not come through on screen for me. What I saw was a giggly little boy who was having fun with his friends and didn't want to turn back and wanted to get the little toad in the creek that they've been chasing. You know, it didn't it didn't ring anywhere near the kind of experience I would I would have expected him if he really was in love with her. And can we just for a second talk about 
a person that would believe a girl who looked like that lived in Michigan, was a virgin, buying a horse farm, I mean, and doesn't have like a bazillion Facebook friends. I mean, come on, give me a break. You're really going to. She did have a ton. That was the weird thing is that Angela made up all of these people with all of these photographs and they all interacted with Nev and convinced him that there was this network of people. This girl I know who's who's uh, 12 years old and is cute on Facebook has more friends than I do. She's got like a thousand friends. If you're a hot girl on Facebook, you're going to have upwards of 800, 900, 1,000 friends. You're not going to have any true. Megan had like 24 or 30 friends that, that, that Angela had all created these 24 or 30 different characters, but that's not a whole lot. No, not for a girl who looks like for- that. They friend when, you no matter what. When you, you want to believe, I think that's it's it. enough. And I've been that's one it. of those people who is lonely enough to want to believe that the person they're talking to is being straightforward with them. You make all kinds of excuses. You say you'll tell yourself anything to make it true that this fascinating person is interested in you and they're available and they're exactly who they represent right. themselves to be. I agree with I you. I did have doubts. But he had doubts. The minute he heard her voice on the first time on the phone, he just he was stunned, really. He, he kept saying over and over, you don't sound like I thought you were going to sound. He because says it that was once. Angela talking in this little baby kitten voice. No, he says and, that once. And it, he does say finally at the end, I can't believe I didn't know their voices were the same. And that is a true moment of insight. He didn't. And we could tell from a mile away that their voices were the same. The audience I mean, plus and plus her voice didn't match her photos. I mean, there's a right. There's there's a sense you get from someone's picture and their attitude in a photograph of what their personality is like. And Megan's personality on the phone was very shy and 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 withdrawn almost. And that's not how she was coming across in her photographs. See, the thing is, is I can totally buy it, Craig, that that, that he would have believed it. But what I needed then was. I would be interested in, in Neve's personality then. And I needed more about him and who he was and why he was able to believe in that. What I felt that they did was foist all of the blame and focus on her and her lies and stuff, but they didn't take responsibility enough, in my opinion, on their end. So much so that like the comments I get from people are always, 100% of the time, what a victim Nev is. To this are they movie. people who've seen the movie? Or are yeah. they people who no, have heard about people, the movie? Believe me, they're people who've seen the movie. They've taken me okay, to Okay, because a lot of people talk about movies and they don't know what the hell they're talking about. I know, like I was doing for a long time before I saw it, but it, seeing it didn't change my mind about that. It's just that... The, the, thing, the reason it's hard to, for me to believe that is that what ultimately made the movie work for me was that in the end, it was not Nev's story. It was Angela's story. And it was this incredibly sad story to me about this person who is so lonely that she would manufacture not just one person, she would manufacture an entire team of people just to interest this person thousands of miles away whom she'd never met. And I think some of that plays back on Nev. It was also his loneliness that made him susceptible to it. And to me... But they don't portray that properly, and I wish they had. But that's what I got out of it. I mean, so I, I, I don't know how they could have portrayed it differently to make it stronger, because for you're, me, that's exactly what I came reaction. away with. You're not alone in your, your reaction, Sasha. I've only read, read one review of this movie. It's by David Edelstein at the New York Magazine. And one part of the movie where it lost him was where uh, he talks Angela into using her Megan voice. He wants to hear her do the Megan voice while he's sitting across the room from her face-to-face Creepy. so he can associate the voice he's heard on the phone. And and Edelstein says that he thinks that he sees a certain glee in 
Nev's face when she does that, that he's enjoying that he's getting a kick out of it. But when I see his face, I see that he's crumbling. I really thought that he was really having a lot of trouble holding it together, that this is, he needed this, he needed to have the shock of seeing the voice that he had fallen in love with coming out of, the, of another woman's mouth. Another yeah, and it was only, to, to, do, make it real. only yeah. to do with his ego and his narcissism. Yeah. That I he thought was it was a really to... crushing moment. I thought, didn't, didn't think he was taking any satisfaction from it at all. I thought he looked really hurt. Oh, God, it didn't look looked... that way to me at all. It just looked like he was embarrassed and he was afraid his brothers were going to tease him, that he was dumb enough to fall yeah. for this act. But to me, the only moving part of the whole film, because I really did find it you know, horrifying that he would ever, that they would ever make this movie, that they would go in. Like Henry was the only voice of reason in the whole film when he said, we shouldn't be exploiting them. We shouldn't be filming this. And he was right. That instinct was right on the money. And that shows that he was raised right and that he's a good person. You know, there's more to life than just capturing the moment and seizing the day. There's, you know, there's a, there's the question of, should you even do these things in the first place? And to me, um, other than the fact that Angela brought this on herself and clearly wanted the exposure, there's a part of her that wants to be recognized, obviously, or she just would have shut the door on them and not let them in. The saddest thing about it is that she clings to love for him. She loves him. It's a great love story of a, of a sad old woman who loves this boy and maybe her lost youth. But the way that she still loves him and how they tease her and mock her when they get in the car, like, she's totally in love with you, dude. Did you see the way she was leaning in on the car? It's just so gross to me. It was, like, really offensive. And people will say, oh, that's because you're a lonely 40-year-old woman. But it, it, that might be part of it. I don't, I don't think so. But I do think that guys say that about every girl that any guy has ever falling in love with that's every and that, know, but, she wouldn't have to be 40 or 50 years old for them to say that they'll say that about her if she's, they might but there's a gross out factor you have to admit yeah. this is the kind of thing that like 20 year old boys joke about in chat rooms it's like you know really common discussion among you know really shallow young boys who talk about women being really you know 40 year old overweight women who are writing them these love letters it's it's it's, it's a modern day phone sex you know back in the day it was phone sex and guys would say oh yeah you know the real phone sex woman doesn't look like that she's really like a 40 year old fat woman or whatever um it's the same kind of thing again totally offensive to me you know just this idea of of exploiting this woman's love and she you could tell she loved him so much that she was willing to do anything for him there at the end and i think she really probably thought that he was going to turn around and fall for her you know possibly could be you know she, because she was so delusional she had to have been to, to, to carry it as far as she did i felt like ever there were so many victims in this movie and it is a very sad story but we see sad stories all the time that are fictional and true do and documentaries that are that you feel are intrusive. I mean, any documentary about a, a personal tragedy, and there are hundreds of them, thousands of them, is intrusive into that person's life. And Angela absolutely gave her full approval to have this movie out there. And so that, for me, that's um, all I need to... That's, yeah, that's except for the, the husband didn't really know what was going on. He didn't really right. get it. And the little girl can't consent. But and I believe the husband did sort of get it. He certainly summed it up. He was certain, summed up the situation with what he gets out of her the, the, his relationship with her enough so that his quote, his story at the end became the title of the movie. He didn't know that she was having an online affair no, as he Megan didn't, and he didn't know that they were coming to make a movie and that the movie was going to be um, promoted as a horror film but and that his whole family was going to be exposed. To, at some point said that it's okay to 
put me in the movie, though, or he wouldn't be in the movie. Yeah, she probably said just sign this piece of paper. But what we didn't see was the follow-up. On the 2020 episode, we only saw Angela talking about it. We didn't see the husband or anything. I yeah, mean, he's, in fact, they said that he didn't want to be interviewed. He didn't want to participate. Yeah, gee, big shocker there. I mean, now that he knows what's going on, why would he want to, you know? I, I'm not willing to go that far, but even if I am going to admit that they're not perfect or that their intentions were not pure, it still to me doesn't it doesn't change what the movie is about. And I don't think Angelo was exploited because for me, exploiting is taking somebody and using them for your entertainment. Granted, there was a freak show element to it, but what was powerful about the movie for me was not that freak show element. I didn't feel like I was watching the Springer show. It was finding the humanity within that that, right. that really grabbed me. So Tell that to the marketing it, it, team. Well, th that's a whole other story. I've got huge issues with the way the movie was marketed from day one. The minute that it played at Sundance to the moment that it played in theaters, I was annoyed by the marketing. But that, that's an entirely... Uh, that's that's an entirely different story. I think the people who sold the movie did a disservice to the movie itself. Um, well, I'm glad that you know you got something out of it. I, I have a reader who wrote me this really long comment about how he and his wife watched it and they cried um, and that they were so moved by the story and it really brought to them a lot of insight and you know they were moved by it. And so you know, I can't begrudge people who were moved by stories. It's just that to me it wasn't. I, I never felt a single tiny bit of sympathy for these boys. The only good shot, I think, in the whole movie, there's only one, is when the very last shot of Nev, I thought that was really great because he's looking at the camera and he looks changed. Mm -hmm. And that is the only moment where I thought, okay, finally a little bit of exposure into this person, a little bit of artistry. And that's the only moment in the film I really like. It should also be said that um, if, if, to people who haven't paid attention to the the, uh, the controversy that surrounded this movie. Um, Sasha's not insane for being skeptical about the reality of some of it. Um, from the, its very first screening, um, it's, it's rumored that um, the uh, Super Size Me documentary, what's his name? Um, Morgan Spurlock. Morgan Spurlock. My Facebook is, friend. Is reputed to have said that that was, the, after it was over, he said it was the best fake documentary that he's ever seen. <laughs> And um, Kyle Buchanan on Movie Line wrote one of the early pans of the movie. And I think it was his theory that the movie wasn't a hoax, but that the filmmakers and Nev knew exactly what they were getting into when they flew off to Michigan to um, roll cameras on this crazy family. And that it was basically just, it was a, it, it wasn't a snow job, but it was a, it was an ambush for their own amusement. And that's another common thread in a lot of the criticisms of the movie um, and the filmmakers deny all of that they they claim that the whole thing was true everything that happened there were there were a couple of recreations um, early on in the film because they were not able to capture everything but they maintained that everything was true and that they had no intention of of you know springing this on this family they didn't know what they were getting themselves into right but any good um, but it, it's important it, that doubt is there and so even though I disagree with Sasha on that point, um, I'm naive enough to think that the whole thing was true. Um, it, it's not without reason that she's skeptical. I have to just say that I don't think it's a hoax anymore. That was the only thing that I changed my mind about after seeing it. I don't think it's a hoax, but I think when you say 
uh, it's all true. Any filmmaker, documentarian that would say that to me is is not, you know, uh, responsible enough of a filmmaker to be making documentaries because everybody knows that you know truth is a matter of perception, and what true is what Nev and his brother and Henry thought of the story because that's what we see. We don't see Angela's side. Um, we see their interpretation, and that's a slippery slope with film, documentaries, paintings, photographs. And it's true of every documentary, too. You have to say that it's true of every documentary. They all have a point of view. You can't get away from that. I know it may not be the point of view that you you might not think it's a fair point of view, but we're at least we're aware of the point of view. There's no doubt that the people who are making the movie are all friends with each other, so naturally they're going to put a the best present themselves in the best light, and right? I'm sure there are and, a lot of conversations and, that took place off screen that we don't hear about. I'm, I'm, I'm almost sure. certain that when, once they discover that what motivates them to drive out there is that they know that she's not. Um, That's yeah. I was going to say, I, I think that you do still have that doubt and they did. They certainly don't bring that out in the movie. And I also have suspicions about that. If they weren't more, a little bit more aware of what they might find, then they let on. And what, what is missing from this story is the brothers' rivalry and perhaps a little bit of teasing. You see a little bit of that in the kitchen. Mm-hmm. But I wouldn't be surprised if the brother is making fun of him and goading him into proving that this girl is real. The and, brother is the least sympathetic character to me of and all. And the brother I mean, waiting to see how this thing plays out and wanting to embarrass his, his brother, Nev. He seems the most exploitative and the most, the person, the most opportunistic of the, of, of the three of them. We both agree that... Um, What's the Henry? Henry is is the is the nicest guy of all. He's yeah. the one with the most conscience. Well, he's the only one that even stops to wonder if what they're doing is right. Uh, but I, I do I did... feel that that Nev is a victim. I can't get past that. I believe he's a victim, and and I, I uh, and I felt that he was really hurt by the whole situation, and that his any any vibes that you're getting from him that he of a of a mean part of his character is is. Uh, I would feel the same way if I fell in love with somebody and if they tricked me into what they tricked me Except into. Except for Ryan, you wouldn't go make a documentary about no, I wouldn't. them. You well, would I, walk I, away I, I, and yeah, you would I, say, that's really sad and fucked up and I'm really hurt. Goodbye. Shut the door. It's over. Yeah. You wouldn't take your brother and drive out there and giggle under the covers about the chats. No, and- I wouldn't. But you know, I think the giggling too, I think he was embarrassed about that. I think he was embarrassed to have to be reading the stuff out loud that – I don't think he was mocking it. I think he was. I think in a way he was proud of it, or he wouldn't. He didn't have to read it. I think that he was. He was in a way he was. He was saying how silly and cutely romantic, almost like a girlish thing that he was doing. You know. I just didn't get him at all. What is he a virgin to? I mean, you know, you have to wonder about that. What kind of guy would be in such a desperate situation in New York City? that he would have to resort to an online relationship and an imaginary affair with somebody. Right. It's not like he's bad looking or anything. Mm-mm. And he's got money, obviously. Yeah. And so he's, you wonder about his uh, He's his around dancers life. all the time, you know. He's, yeah. he's around beautiful women all the time. He's, you know, um, maybe she, she fed his ego. I mean, we all know what it's like to fall in love online. That happens all the time. It's just there was a night, you know, a, a lot of naivete there involved in, in Nev. And that's probably what Angela liked about him and probably why she knew she could really fool him because he wasn't smart, not smart enough, but he wasn't savvy enough, despite having grown up in the information age, to suss out 
that this was a wrong situation from the beginning, you know. He wasn't cynical enough for that to even occur to him. He wasn't cynical enough. No, he was he was hopeful. So he's an odd duck. And that's another mm-hmm. thing is I wish that the movie had, you know, delved into you him just, a little you bit. You just have a lot more heart than I do. I guess I, I, I guess it reveals a lot about me that, that it doesn't matter to me. I know that there are people being exploited here. And they're, even if they're choosing to be exploited, that they're, that's, a, that's, a, that's a, the wrong choice for them to be making. And they shouldn't really be allowed to to make that choice if that's if that's the situation they're getting themselves into but we see movies all the time where people are exploited we see judy garland movies where she was exploited by mgm and she was given uppers and downers to, to go on and to to perform but we don't we don't we don't look down on those movies we don't we don't we don't feel we don't we, we realize it and we feel bad about it but we, it doesn't change the way we feel about those movies if the movies are good, which I didn't feel yeah. Catfish was well, that's good the thing. In. I guess that's the thing, too. If you got something out of it, which I feel that I did, and I think that maybe Craig did, too, then we feel that it's worth it. But if you feel that it's been – that it was just an ugly waste of time, then, of course, then it's, that's what it is. And I didn't that's get, a val- that's a, that, The only you know, tiny thing people, I got out of it was her, was Angela. The scene, yeah. the brief moments with her where she cries and she talks about her past, even though, unfortunately, all, a lot of that was, was lies. Mm-hmm. So, but you that's know, fascinating to see to me. I mean, the whole thing fascinating is fascinating. Fascinating in what way, though? Like a, looking at a two-headed horse, fascinating, or you know? Yeah, in a way. I mean, just to just to know that there there are stories out there in people's lives and every people's day-to-day lives that are as dramatic and as, as intriguing and as as as, uh, as any movie, as any as any script that anybody could invent. And I feel that in a way, she wrote the script for this movie of. That she starred in and can and 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 hoodwinked these guys into making this movie of a script that she had written. She created the characters for herself, yeah, and she created the characters point. for. If only the movie had had that kind of insight, that Ryan, that's brilliant. I, 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 I got that. I, I did sort of like. I, I admit that I sort of uh, reach for things like that. That I sort of try to rationalize about uh, what I get out of a movie because I. I want to try to figure out what it is I like about it because I don't want to feel guilty about it. I, I, I do feel like that this is kind of icky in a lot of ways. And so I don't want to feel bad about it. So I try to try to make excuses for the reasons that it may maybe have a valid reason for existing. And that's something I, I did come up with, that here's a woman who's very she's, – she's really some sort of uh, evil genius to, to be able to juggle all that, all those characters, and keep, update all those Facebook pages and, and keep all the people straight and to assemble all those photographs – and put on that voice on the phone and keep all that straight in your head. What kind of genius do you have to be to do that? You know? And what and kind so of time do you have to have? It's a, I know. And it's like a very, it's like she wrote, it's like, it's a creation that she made. It's almost like a novel that she created. And, and, but it, but it turned into a screenplay inadvertently. And none of it was on paper, but it became like an impro- improvised screenplay that she got these guys to participate in, in finance for her and she and as a result she is famous for it i don't i wouldn't be surprised at all if she's not selling a lot of those paintings you know for, from people who just um buy that sort of weird stuff you know? i don't know because the public sentiment is seems that the people who do like the movie and there aren't a lot of them but the ones who do like it seem to be on nev's side and see her as the as the demon you know the the evil villain of the story and they see him as the sad poor put upon boy you know You've I'm talked sure. to weird people because I totally don't get that out of the movie at all. I'm and just going by the it, by the commenters it, that the, I. And the thing is, is, is I, I've already sort of said this, so I'm probably repeating myself. But to me, it doesn't matter 
what the intentions of the filmmakers were or what the motivations of the people in the movie was. The only thing that matters is the end result. And to me, as clunky as it was and as rough around the edges as it was, it gets at a core, powerful human truth that most movies just don't. And the fact that it ties into the whole idea of the Internet, this weird thing that has dual powers of both connecting us across great distances but also throwing up these barriers because people can essentially lie about who they are, that it just... It, that's just another layer on top of this movie. It doesn't matter what their intentions were in filming it. it. It's it's the record that they were that they came away with that is that is powerful to me. Oh, that's interesting that you should say that. But to me, that would never it never would be that surprising to me because to me it's like internet circa 1995. I mean, I remember people creating identities back then. I mean, like guys pretending to be women, um, older women pretending to be younger women, and then killing those women off by a fake death. You know, I've heard How these many, stories. I mean, that's going on. There's a, there's 10,000 people doing that as we speak this moment online, you know? It's, it's right, but I, I'm saying my discovery of it was oh, a okay. long time ago. And so when yeah. Catfish kind of comes out, it's like, okay, f- so now people are starting to catch on that people fake mm-hmm. identities on the internet. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh. I, I've been on the internet just as long, and I've been familiar with that kind of behavior for just as long. This is the first time I've ever seen it dealt with. In any kind of a movie, in any kind of a realistic way. The only movies that have touched on it have been these phony, corny horror movies, which, getting back to the marketing of this movie, is the way that they build this movie, which is a shame. But this movie wasn't that. It was, it it peeled back the layers on something that that happens hundreds of thousands of times a day and has been happening every day since the first internet connection was made and yet it's not been talked about that's true and you're right you're right about that um i felt like the 2020 segment on it was a lot more um i love the 2020 it should be it should be required viewing to to fully enjoy this movie you need to see the 2020 segment i think you know the best thing she says in that is that she says that there are people who've written her although you can't tell what's real right with her you can't tell if she's ever telling the truth but she does say that that um People have written her and said they're in this trapped situation. They don't know how to get out of it. They're creating these fake identities and men are in love with them and they want to be free of it. And she keeps saying to him that she's happy that he finally freed her from this responsibility. But I don't know. Did you guys buy that? I never really bought that she really meant that. I felt like she just was in love with him. I think part of her, there's a rational side of her that realizes that she's insane and she needs to be out of it. But then there's the other needy part of her that can't let go of it. Right. And I actually, mm-hmm. I, I actually think, question whether she is out of it. I think she's still in the middle of it. I think I so think too. I think it's bound to be exhausting. And and when she realized that, that there was a limit to how far it could go, that it, the the effort she was putting into it was no longer giving her the return or the advancement, the progression that she needed, and so she might as well just find a way out of it. I I, I think that she was happy to have it. She probably would have been happy to have it go on for a few months longer, but she must know that it couldn't last. And so she, in a way, there had to be some relief to have a way out. One interesting thing about it is how these characters can kind of act as templates, and they sort of tell more about the people talking about them than right. they do about the people that are in the film. You know, Like, look at how much we've all revealed about ourselves just in talking about the movie. Right. Right. That's why it's really a valuable thing. And I will say, too, I know that, that you probably didn't mean it um, disparagingly, Craig, when you said that the movie is uh, a little bit klutzy and rough around the edges. But I found it 
to be put together beautifully. I mean, the way that it was edited, there was the sequence when they first discover that she's um, sending him songs that she's found on YouTube. If someone had, had written that scene, scene by scene, shot by shot, and storyboarded it, it couldn't have been better edited and laid out. They had every shot they needed to cover all the coverage as if they were filming it on a soundstage. It was great the way they, they put that it was edited together. I thought it had a really in, in incredible narrative thrust to it. That's all the time we have for this week's podcast. You can read more from awardsdaily.com um, on our site or from Craig Kennedy at livinginsinema.com. You can send your comments or questions to awardsdaily at gmail.com. Or Craig at livinginsinema.com. I will see you next week.